Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. At the beginning of part three of his work on the basis of morality, Arthur Schopenhauer is going to consider some skeptical objections to morality, namely the idea that there is anything like a natural basis for morality in us human beings. And the way that he presents it, you know, it looks pretty bad. He actually brings up a skeptic, Sextus Empiricus and the Pyronians. So this has an ancient pedigree, you could say, this doctrine that everything is essentially by convention or institution rather than having some sort of basis that we can access easily. And he also brings up a historical perspective at the beginning, saying, might it not follow from a retrospective glance at the vain attempts to find a sure basis of morals for more than 2,000 years that there is no natural morality at all that is independent of human institution. And he says, on the contrary, might it not be inferred that this is nothing but an artificial product, a means invented for what? For the better restraint, for holding people back of the selfish and wicked human race. And that accordingly, without the support of positive religions, it would fail since it had no internal credentials and no natural basis. So he's presenting a significant problem here in the 19th century. If we look back, we see that history is littered with all all sorts of attempts to provide a natural basis for morality, many of which contradict each other. Maybe there is no such thing. Maybe it is just a artificial product, something that ultimately reduces to power or force or the workings of one set of people against others or delusions and ideology. And he goes on and he says, justice and the police cannot suffice everyone where there are offenses whose discovery is too difficult. Civil law can at most enforce justice, but not philanthropy and beneficence, since here everyone would like to be the passive part. Everyone would like to receive these and no one the active. And then he says, this has given rise to the idea, and we see this even today by some people, right, that morality rests solely on religion. Both have the same aim of being the complement to the necessary inadequacy of legislation and the machinery of the state. So we'd have, have like the, the realm of power, the state, hopefully trying to make things the best for everybody involved in it. We have religion over here, and then we've got morality, this sort of bastard child roaming around, maybe restraining bad human impulses, maybe not. And so... He's going to point out that, you know, if we look at human beings, we actually have to be realistic about this. He says, we should be greatly and childishly mistaken if we thought that all of the just and lawful acts of mankind had a moral origin. Now, he's not denying that these acts can, in fact, be just. You can give people what you've committed to. You can apportion resources or burdens fairly, right? That can be in the action itself. But the question is, what's motivating you? And he says, the relation between justice is practiced by human beings and genuine honesty of heart 
is analogous to that between expressions of politeness and love of one's neighbor. So what we have here is justice and politeness, which can also include philanthropy in the sort of formal external sense, giving people things, you know, you're nice to your neighbors, but that doesn't mean that you actually care about them at all. That doesn't mean that you want the best for them. It might be that you're actually engaging in something a bit self-serving. And he says that a sign of this is the fact that there's a deep indignation ready to turn into the most furious anger roused at the slightest hint of a suspicion in this direction. What's the suspicion in this direction? That somebody is not really what they're pretending to be. And then he says, only the inexperienced simpleton will take all of this for pure coin and for the effect of a tender moral feeling or sentiment or conscience. In reality, universal honesty and uprightness as practiced in human intercourse rest on, he says, two external necessities. The reason why people behave morally for the most part is not because they have that as their motivational structure, recognizing the good in itself, honesty. When we say honesty, we should think back to an earlier conception of it in Latin, honestum, which is like the Greek kalon, meaning the good, the beautiful, what it is that we value, what has intrinsic value. Schopenhauer is saying, nah, we know that in a lot of cases, people talk a good talk and they'll even behave morally, but they really have other motives for doing this. And so one of these is this external force, uh, the order of law, which he says protects everybody, the rights of everyone here. Everyone's rights are protected by public authority. So that's one thing. You don't want to get in trouble for breaking the law. And then the necessity of of maintaining a good name, though he says the recognized necessity of a good name or civil honor for making one's way in the world. And you might think of this as how to be successful, or you might think about this as security, how to just hold on to what you've actually got. And Schopenhauer thinks that most people in most places at most times, this is really what's motivating them. And so he says, everybody's steps are under the supervision of public opinion. It never forgives a single false step. If you steal once, you're going to have your honesty and integrity impugned and you'll be on the outs with society. Then he brings up a very interesting point about property. And here he makes some really great observations, not completely unique, of course, but he says that property, the central point in human life on which life's energy and activity mainly turn, assuming that purely ethical motives to honesty and integrity exist, they can, for the most part, be applied to civil possessions only in a very roundabout way. Why? Well, you know, it was quite popular at the time to make appeals, as some people still do today, to like a natural right to property and say that property is ex essentially like an extension of the human being who has it. And you've got to keep your hands off of other people's property or else you're a bad person and the society can turn against you. And he brings up a you know, really central problem here. He says, what a distance there is in most cases between our civil possession, what we actually have, and that original source of the natural right of property. The connection between them is often difficult and even impossible to demonstrate. Are we in this sort of Lockean state of nature where we mix our labor with natural resources or things that we've previously bought and then we generate property? Schopenhauer says, no, that's not the way it actually works. Why? 
Our property is inherited, acquired through marriage, won at a lottery, or if not in this way, is still not acquired by our own work, by the sweat of our brow, but through cunning thoughts and bright ideas and speculation with stocks and shares, for example. In fact, it is sometimes acquired through stupid ideas, which have by means of chance been crowned or glorified by the Deus Aventus, right? The God of the happening. And I think he's quite right. Property is rather arbitrary. And he says, only in the smallest number of cases is property really the fruit of actual labor and effort. Even then, this work is often only mental, like that of lawyers, doctors, officials, and teachers. And he says, it needs considerable culture and education to recognize an ethical right in the case of these possessions and accordingly to respect it from a purely moral perspective. So why do we, in fact, respect property rights? Well, because of these things. We don't want to get in trouble and we don't want to get a bad reputation. And he talks about how it's so much easier for rich people to follow these rules. And they can even think of themselves as truly moral persons. He says, the wealthy man is often of inviolable integrity because he is wholeheartedly devoted to a rule and maintains a maxim on whose observance depend his entire possessions and the many advantages he thereby enjoys. He therefore thoroughly in earnest of his profession of the fundamental principle, sum cuique, to each their own and never departs from it. And Schopenhauer is saying, well, of course they do. They benefit from it. It's easy for them. It doesn't require any real sacrifice. The poor person, on the other hand, the one who looks at property and you know sees what they don't have, he says that the poor man who has come off badly and by virtue of an inequality of property sees himself condemned to want and hard work while others openly and obviously live in luxury and idleness will hardly acknowledge that underlying this inequality is a corresponding inequality of merit and honest livelihood. But if he doesn't recognize this, how is he to find the purely ethical impulse to honesty and uprightness. So if we think about property as a case study here, something that's really essential to human beings, we're not going to get that we just recognize morality and then follow it kind of automatically. It's easy to be moral for the rich. It's hard to be moral for the poor. It's also easy, he says, for the, the merchants who are very invested in that sort of thing. And so Schopenhauer goes on and says, what is going to keep the poor people in check? What is going to help them? What is going to restrain them, right? And so, you know, one thing that people talk about is conscience. And this is quite interesting. He says, in the face of the skeptical view, appeal is made in the first instance to conscience. We don't always do that. Sometimes we talk about like a moral compass or, you know, you just kind of know what the right thing to do is. We bandy about these words like integrity and honesty and justice and kindness. But what's the real case? So he says, the first problem with conscience is that not everybody has a well-formed conscience. Some people have good consciences. Some have bad consciences, right? So that is not actually going to give us what it is that we're looking for. But what else can we say about conscience? It's got a number of issues with it. He says that the violation of external arbitrary even absurd rules torments a man, many a man with inner reproaches precisely as does conscience. And these can be like 
very arbitrary. He gives the example of Jewish people who do something on the Sabbath and then they're bothered by this. He also talks about a nobleman or officer stung by a secret self-reproach because in the case of some rebuke, he did not properly comply with the laws of the fool's code called knightly honor, which is this necessity of a good name, right? So conscience is not actually going to help us. And he's got this great quip here where he says, many a man would be astonished if he saw how his conscience, which seems to him such an imposing affair, is really made up. What, where does conscience come from? So he suggests it probably consists of one-fifth fear of men, one-fifth fear of the gods, one-fifth prejudice, judging ahead of time, literally, one-fifth vanity, and one-fifth habit. So what is conscience? He says, take religious people. Religious people of every faith frequently understand by conscience nothing but the dogmas and commandments of their religion and self-scrutiny undertaken with reference to them. So conscience is not going to be particularly helpful. Where are we going to get a basis of morality from? He's not going to tell us quite here, but he is going to point out that there are moral people. There are people who do good things. So it is just as certain there are actions of disinterested philanthropy and of entirely voluntary justice to appeal not to the facts of consciousness, but simply to experience. I refer to isolated yet indubitable cases as proofs of such action. Not only was the danger of legal prosecution entirely excluded here, but that of discovery and even of suspicion. And yet the rich man was given his property by the poor. For instance, something is lost, found and returned to the owner. A deposit made to a third party who has since died is restored to the rightful owner. A sum of money privately entrusted to a poor man by a fugitive for whom it is faithfully kept and to whom it is returned. Undoubtedly, there are cases of this kind now notice what he says next. But the surprise, the deep emotion, and the high respect with which we welcome them are clear evidence that they belong to things we do not expect and are rare exceptions. And he goes on to say, yes, there are genuinely moral people and they're like four-leaf clovers. They happen, but they're not the norm. Most people are not really acting out of genuine morality. They're acting out of, you know, the want to protect themselves, to advance themselves. And uh, we're going to get to that in a bit when we look at other parts of this, particularly the anti-moral incentives that he'll discuss. A little bit later, he's going to say, all these skeptical objections taken together certainly do not suffice to deny the existence of all genuine morality, but they do moderate it. They moderate our expectations of the moral tendency in human beings and consequently of the natural foundation of ethics. And he goes on and says, for much that is ascribed to this foundation can be shown to spring from other motives. And a consideration of the moral depravity of the world proves clearly enough the incentive to do good cannot be very powerful, especially as it does not often work, even where the motives opposing it are not strong. Right. So whatever genuine basis there's going to be, it's not going to be something that like automatically convinces people or is present in everybody. So we really do have to moderate our claims about genuine morality and its basis and how people follow it. And he talks about education. I think this is something very, very important to think about. It's not just education in schools, it's education in general formation, we could say, where we get our moral ideas from as children. And he points out something very 
problematic. He says, in education, people imagine they promote the morality of the young by representing uprightness and virtue as the maxims that are universally observed in the world. Now, why is that a bad thing? In part because it's false. In part because realizing that it's false can lead these children as they become adults into kind of resourcelessness where they think that maybe they're isn't any genuine morality. He says, if later experience teaches them something different, often to their great detriment because they trust other people, the discovery that the teachers of their youth were the first to deceive them can have a more injurious effect on their own morality than if those teachers themselves had given the first example of frankness and honesty and said, the world is sunk in evil. Men are not what they ought to be. Do not let that lead you astray and see that you are better. All this, as I have said, makes it more difficult for us to recognize the actual immorality of the human race. When we think that people are better than they are because we've uncritically bought into lines of uh, hopeful thinking or BS or ideology, whatever it happens to be that our teachers give us. And maybe even you could say our institutions teach us and our culture teaches us or our parents teach us. We're being set up for some serious issues. He closes out this section by making a distinction about ethics. And he says that I'll probably be told ethics is not concerned with how people actually behave, but this is the science that states how they ought to behave. You can think about Kant, for example, right? And Schopenhauer says, no, that's not what ethics is actually about. It doesn't just have to do with the concept of ought or the imperative form of ethics, which is a really has a theological morality. And outside of this, it loses sense and meaning. He says, I assume on the, the other hand, the purpose of ethics is to indicate, explain, and trace to its ultimate ground the extremely varied behavior of human beings from a moral point of view. There's no other way for discovering the foundations of ethics than the empirical, namely to investigate whether there are generally any actions to which we must attribute genuine moral worth. What would these be? He gives three examples, voluntary justice, doing justice when you don't have to, right? Pure philanthropy, giving to other people, benefiting them without expecting something in return, including praise or something like that. And then he also says real magnanimity, this capacity to rise above and not allow yourself to be bothered by trivial matters. And he thinks that this does exist, but we have to, instead of engaging in a priori speculation about it or trying to impose this on everybody or buying into what our educators tell us, we need instead to look at how people actually are, to how the psychology and motivations of human beings work. So these skeptical doubts about morality, they're useful in a way for leading us to be more realistic, according to Schopenhauer. But we don't have to buy into them altogether and say, oh, it's all just self-interest or egoism or something like that. Instead, we need to look, we need to do the work of looking afar to find instances of genuine morality and what motivates it. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, 
keep studying these great philosophical works.